Amen. Um, I love hearing those stories. Good job, Brett. Is Brett in here? I see all the other motorcyclers, but good job, Brett, wherever you are. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, everyone, um, I am excited for this morning. Um, We're in our series on um, new beginnings, um, and we've been in the book of Zechariah, and today we're going to start in the book of Haggai. Um, and we're only going to look at two verses in Haggai, um, because I, I just want you to know, I, when I finished putting my presentation together for today, um, I had 99 slides just from these two verses. Um, the good news is I found one extra slide to get it to 100, um, so I got a picture of Lucy. Um, she's almost 10 months, and so I get to brag about her moment. And um, if you can see in that picture, she is pointing at Jesus in a children's book. So just, she's ahead of the curve. So, um, but anyways, we're going to cover a whole lot of stuff today. Um, And I'm really excited. We're going to look at a theme. And as we start, I do need to give a shout out. There's a a YouTube channel called The Bible Project. And um, the theme that we're going to look at today, the first place I encountered it was on The Bible Project. I knew a lot about different parts of it, but I'd never seen it as a whole. And so that's, we're going to look at the theme of the temple. Um, and, and as we do it, I hope you will learn a whole lot. I also hope by the end of the day, you might realize, wow, what I thought about the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it means for me today, I maybe didn't understand it as well as I should. And so I hope you'll see that. Um, as I, every time I dig into this theme, I come away just thrilled. I come away with new insights and I just come away just rejoicing and who the Lord is. So that's what we are going to do this morning, and I'd like to open us in prayer. Ah, Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you that um, the hope we have in you is that someday the, the place where we live and the place where you live will be one fully, and there will be nothing accursed, and we will, we will be fully in your presence in a new heaven, a new earth, a new Eden, and we will be able to just rejoice in your presence and, and Lord, we thank you that right now, even as we are on this side of the grave and on this side of many of those promises, that through your Holy Spirit, we have such access to you. And we pray that your Spirit would be working today, that it would be speaking through me, that these would be your words, not mine, and that you would give us all ears to hear. Um, and Lord, I, I pray if anyone here does not know you, um, that by the end of today, they would say, I am right before you, Lord, because they would just understand the amazing gift of your son, and they would understand what it takes to be in right relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. When I first started preparing the sermon, when I got to the phrase, the house of the Lord, I immediately thought, well, that's the temple. Um, And then I started to think about what the temple is. Um, And when we hear this house of the Lord, we go to temple. So house of the Lord equals temple. Um, But when we're in church, what do we call this? We call this God's house, the house of the Lord. So house of the Lord equals church as well, or at least the church building. Um, So the temple kind of equals the church building is kind of the logic that goes on in my head. For a long time as a believer, whenever I read temple in the Old Testament, I just right away said church. 
Um, the, the early Israelites, when they had the tabernacle, that was like they were a church plant going elementary school to elementary school until they had a building, right? I, um, but that's wrong. Um, that's super wrong um, because the, what the Old Testament temple was and what our church is are two very different things with very, very different functions. Um, and we should rejoice in that. Um, it'll take us a while to get to the rejoicing because we have to start with the theme that the temple is built on. And to do that, we have to go to Genesis 1. Um, in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth over a cycle of seven days. I'm a seventh day or seven day creationist, not a six day creationist. There were seven. Um, but but um, each day God spoke and things came into being and the universe was structured and ordered. And it's on that sixth day God has created light, darkness, land, done all these different things. On the sixth day he's created animals, he's created everything. And every day as he finishes his creation, it, it was very, or it was good. And then on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So essentially God says, let's make image bearers, humanity, that will rule over my creation. I'm going to put them in charge of my creation. And so that's what we are. We are God's image bearers to rule over his creation. And after God does that, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then he looks out on the, at the end of the sixth day, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. In Genesis 2, we, we kind of re-see the creation account where God now forms man out of dust and breathes into man's nostrils. And, and then the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, so this is where we start to see the theme that's going to be the temple. And you're like, we're talking about a garden right now. Just wait. Um, so Eden is this place where God dwells with humanity in creation. God gave humanity a purpose. Tend this garden. And so it starts off with the man and then the rib, the woman, and then they tend creation together. And, and, and so God dwells with them. He walks with them. He spends time with them. It is a place, quite literally, where we see heaven and earth meet. And that is what the temple will be. And, and so we need to keep this imagery in mind, the place where heaven and earth meet. And it starts off with God, Eden, and humanity. And it's not just that, though, because that would, be, that would be such a limited view of it because the man and his wife are also both naked. And when we read that, I'm a youth pastor, so I giggle. Um, but when we read that, if we were to understand the beauty of the implication, there were no barriers. They were fully in the presence of God and fully in the presence of each other. And there was no sin. There was nothing accursed. They were just fully with God and in right relationships with each other. And then things start to go downhill. Um, the serpent tempts the woman, um, and sometimes men feel like, man, it was the woman's fault, but then you have to remember um, the man was standing next to her, as it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the serpent has tempted her, and she, she sees that the fruit was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the husband had the command from God of, don't eat from this one tree. Everything else you have access to, don't eat from this one tree. And what happens after they eat, the, their eyes are both opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so the first thing they do is they, they put on coverings 
in each other's presence. The next thing that happens after that, man and woman are now kind of clothed, fig leaves. I don't know how good that was, but uh, then they, they hear the sound of the Lord, very next verse, they hear the sound of the Lord what God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. So now not only are they putting up barriers with themselves, they recognize we can't be in the presence of God anymore. And and now there's a problem. And it's not a God problem. It's not, man, God is so like, oh, he's mean to them. God is holy and perfect and unchanging. Sin cannot be in his presence. So at this moment, they are sinful and they recognize that and they realize there's a problem with us dwelling in this place where heaven and earth meet. And it's that we really can't be here anymore. That's what happens. And, and God knows it too. Because what happens at the end of Genesis 3 is the Lord drove out the man and at the east of, and the woman. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim uh, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So humanity at this point is removed from Eden. And God sets an angel with a flaming sword to keep humanity from joining, from coming back in. Because no longer can that be. The place where heaven and earth meet no longer applies to humanity because of our sin. The other, the only good that comes out of this is in the middle of Genesis 3 as the Lord is assessing blame and there are curses aplenty to the people who were so wicked to man and woman and also the serpent. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God makes a promise to the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. And that that promise is one will come from this woman who will defeat you. And if we read this inside of the context and not knowing that it's going to be Jesus, that one of the things we think is this is our path back to Eden. That's how we should read this. And, and so, so if we read this without knowing about the New Testament, our next thought should be, well, I wonder which of the women's offsprings it's going to be. And who's her first son? Cain. And her second son, Abel. And they both offer sacrifices to the Lord. And you wonder, one of them does a good job, Abel. One of them does a bad job, Cain. And you wonder, which of them is it going to be? But we know that doesn't go very well. Because Cain kills Abel, and, and what happens out of it, Cain kills his brother, and then Cain is confronted by the Lord, famous line, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord and him, boom, and, and the Lord says, you're, you know, basically curses him. Cain says, I want to die, and what happens out of it is Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So instead of going back towards Eden, humanity moves further away. Do you see you see, I hope you see this because it's going to get really cool. Um, at least I think so. Um, so here's the next offspring of the woman that we might hope in. Um, there's this guy named Noah. So you go, Adam, in Genesis 5, you start with Adam and you kind of work down. And, and, and there's this guy named Lamech who has a son named Noah. And when he has a son named Noah, he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And that the ground that the Lord has cursed, that curse came when Adam and Eve sinned. The Lord said the ground is now cursed. So when Lamech says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, what he's saying is Noah's going to be the one to bring us back into Eden. That's what Lamech's hoping for right now. And then we learn, we, we learn maybe Noah's going to lift Adam's curse. And then we learn that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What did they do in Eden? 
They walked with God in the cool of the day. So we start to get hopeful. And I know half of you are out here like, well, we already know it's not Noah. I know that. But just follow me. Follow me. Okay? So, so Noah's blameless. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you. And then he lists off all the creation that man was appointed dominion over. And so, so the ark is kind of this mini version of Eden. God tells him, go here, fill it with all these things that you're in charge of, the SS Eden. So you've got this blameless man and his family. And, and I, I think you're supposed to read it this way. I really do. And then he gets off the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the exact command God made when he created humanity in Genesis 1. So it feels like we're back to the beginning. Blameless Noah. On top of that, Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. Do you see? Do you see? Noah is a blameless gardener. He's what Adam should have been. Or is he? The very next thing that happens is Noah gets drunk and uh, he lays uncovered naked in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, there's shame. And so we know here, first off, being drunk to the point of passing out, he's, he's definitely sinning. Noah is not a blameless person at this point. But also what we see here is nakedness causing shame. And so between Noah and his sons, we know that we're not back to Eden. And so that hope is dashed. But humanity is not done. Very next story after we see another set of genealogies. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and it's this massive number of people now. And as people migrated from the east, away from Eden, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, where heaven and earth meet. And, and, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's some problems here. God is not mentioned. God also told them, be fruitful, fill the earth. And they're saying, let's not be dispersed. Let's stay together. Let's build something for ourselves that will be a place where heaven and earth meet. It's the tower of, it's, it's Babylon. There's a whole nerdy thing. Talk to me about it after if you have questions. Um, but there's a whole cool thing about how it's not really Tower of Babel. Babylon is the idea of man contending with God, and it comes from the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the Tower of Babylon. Nerdy thing. Point of all of this is the people decide they're going to make their own place where heaven and earth meet. And how are they going to do that? They're going to build a really tall tower. And this next thing I say, this is a mat thing. I fully believe this enough to tell all of you, but not everyone agrees. But I want you to think, If you saw humanity wiped out from a flood, except for a small number of people who then repopulated, and you were trying to think, how do we make sure that never happens again? And how do we get to God or the heavens on our own terms? You need flood insurance, right? So why not why not build a really tall tower? Does that make sense? Some of you are like, that's crazy. But um, there's evidence for it. I just, again, we have a hundred slides. We don't have time for this. But I think it's really cool because the idea there is humanity is doing everything they can to get back to God in this story without being on God's terms. And the problem with that is God is perfect and holy and all-powerful and unchanging. And God is like, that doesn't work. So God comes down, he looks at what they're doing, and he says, nope. And so what does he do? He scatters them. 
and we wind up out of this, we have God, then we have all the people, and it's peoples, it's different people groups. They're no longer united. And then we have a question mark about a land, because we started in a land Eden. And at the end of Genesis 11, we go, what do we do? We, there's, there's nothing to do right now, because now we don't know who from the line of the woman is going to defeat death. We don't know the land that they're going to be in at all. And then we turn the page, and we get to Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. God's talking about blessings all of a sudden. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of these families that are scattering shall be blessed because of one from your line. In the land that I show you, clearly the offspring of the woman is going to come from Abraham. And so we, we go from there. We're, we're, we've now gone from Adam to Abraham. And, and now we've got this idea. We've got God, Abraham's descendants, and the land God shows Abraham. We also have a line separating them. Because this doesn't deal with sin. We're, we're still not there yet. But, but what we start to learn here is that, that God does have a plan. God wasn't like, all right, I dispersed him at Babel. Now I'm going to leave. Instead, God has a plan. And so that's what we see start to develop. And from there we go Abraham, then we go Isaac, then we go Jacob, then we go Jacob's 12 sons and like the most dysfunctional thing ever. Um, and, and then from there, Judah is the one where the promise that from Abraham, now it's going to be from Judah's line is where ultimately Jesus, the one from the woman, is going to come from. And, and, and we get to this point where the Israelites go into Egypt and they're enslaved for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, on the other side of that, the Lord uses Moses to save the people. And it's here where we start to see more of this idea of Abraham's descendants and the land God shows Abraham fleshed out. Because, you know, you, you guys, I hope, are familiar with, and I didn't do slides for this. So, I mean, we're, we're, we didn't have time. But, but so, so Moses let my people go. Ten plagues, that whole thing, right? You, um, and then they cross the Red Sea. And then they're in the wilderness. And then they get to this mountain, Mount Sinai, which is actually the mountain where earlier in Exodus, Moses was up on the mountain and saw the burning bush. Um, and, and so now Moses takes the Israelites back there. And it's here where God tells them what the plan is. God says this to say to Moses, to say to them, um, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So all of a sudden, God is talking about a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we're not back to where heaven and earth meet, but we're starting to get there. We're starting to flesh things out because what were Adam and Eve in the garden, if not priests, tending the creation God had given them? I think that's there. Um, and, and, then, and then things fall apart because while Moses is up on the mountain, the Lord tells Moses how to build the tabernacle, which is the, the, the mobile temple. Um, what, what God tells Moses, while God is up there laying that out for Moses, and they're doing the Ten Commandments, and they're up on this mountain, Moses is up on the mountain, surrounded by a glory cloud of God. The people down below are like, is he coming back? And then what they do is they turn to Aaron, and they said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Um, And Aaron does not respond, shut up. Um, Aaron responds by saying, give me all your gold. Let's make this happen. And it's so sad. Um, But remember how we were talking about a kingdom of priests? 
What, what comes out of this, a lot of things come out of this, a lot of really sad things come out of this, but one of the things is that instead of having a kingdom of priests, we now have a nation of Israel, and the Levites are the only tribe that are said to be priests because of how they handle the sin. And, and so we go from 12 tribes of priests to one tribe of priests. And so instead of a nation of priests, whatever percentage out of 12, one is. I said that wrong, but you guys, fractionally, math. Um, but so um, it's this sad, oh, I gotta go back. So it's this sad moment where, where we're no longer a nation of priests. Now we're gonna be a nation with priests. And so it's kind of a, a lesser thing because the people are so sinful. And then there's the other side of this because what's happening, Mo, Moses asked God, we, we want you to be the God who dwells with us. And that's where God develops the, here's what you need to do, here's the tabernacle. This is going to be the place where I dwell with you. And they build the Ark of the Covenant and they build the tabernacle. And if, if we could do 200 slides, I would show you how the tabernacle, all the imagery of it goes right back to Eden. It just, it, it just does. It's, the idea is, is tree of life. The idea is the people with God, God in their midst, dwelling together. That, that's what the tabernacle was, and it was an echo of Eden. And so, so what happens is, is they build it. Um, on the other side of all this unpleasantness, they, they build the tabernacle. And then when they dedicate the tabernacle, what happens is they're finishing it up. The cloud, the cloud of God, the cloud that was on Mount Sinai now goes into the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now we have this place, the tabernacle, and it's a place where we start to see again heaven and earth meeting where God dwells with his people. But there's problems because Moses couldn't go in the tabernacle when the presence of the Lord was fully there because of sin. And then right after Exodus 40, we go right into Leviticus, a whole book on atonement and how it's going to take sacrifice and the blood of animals is going to be what it takes for the people to have God dwell with them. Because God who is perfect and holy cannot be in the presence of what isn't. And, and, and so the whole exodus, you've got the tabernacle, and it's this moment God and his people dwelling together finally. We're kind of back to Eden, except with a whole lot more sin. And then there's going to have to be death paid in order to keep this going. And, and so it's not a perfect solution. There, there's still a wall up, but, but it's a little bit better, I guess. Um, and, and so, so we, we, we pass a lot of time now. We go from Moses to Joshua. They still have the tabernacle. Then after Joshua, we go to Judges, and we have a whole bunch of Judges, and they still have the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And then we get to Samuel, and then Samuel, and then King Solomon, and King Solomon's terrible. Um, and then you get to King David, and King David is a man after God's own heart. Second um, Samuel 6 through 10, I think, are the closest we ever see to Eden in the entire Bible, pre-New Testament and pre-prophecy. Um, but, but, you get to this point where David says to a prophet, he says, I would like to build a house for the Lord in Jerusalem. And the prophet Nathan says, go for it. That sounds awesome. And then the Lord tells Nathan, no. Tell David, no. Tell David, I, you're not going to build for me a house. I'm going to build for you a house. And then David is tied to the promise that is the one who would come from the woman, the one from the line of Judah, and now the one from the line of David. God promises David a king that will reign forever. And that's Jesus. We're going to get there. But, but David does not build the temple. The Lord tells him no. And it's his son Solomon who builds it. And when Solomon builds the temple... Guess what happens when the temple is built? First off, the imagery of the temple. If we had 300 slides, we could show how the imagery of the temple matches Eden. It's, it's just there. It just is. It's 
Trust me. Um, so, um, but uh, then we get to 1 Kings 8 where they dedicate the temple. And just like when Moses dedicated the tabernacle and the people dedicated the tabernacle, look what happens. And when the priest came out of the holy place, the center, the most holy, the, the center where God's presence fully dwelled in the temple, um, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So now we've gone from tabernacle to temple in Jerusalem. And it's, it's good. It's, it's very good. God is dwelling with his people in their nation, in the capital. But we still have problems because the people still can't bear to be in the presence of God if he's fully with them. And so that divide is still there. From, from this point on... Um, on a, on a quick side note, Solomon is the wisest person in the world, but his son who takes over after him is the worst. Um, and I, I don't know what to do with it, except so Solomon's son is like king for a week, and the kingdom splits in two. And so then you go Judah and Samaria, um, and Judah's the kingdom that has Jerusalem. And they, they have a few good kings, a lot of bad kings. Um, Samaria has a lot more bad kings and a few good kings. But what happens is all the prophetic stuff where, where all these prophets of the Lord are saying, if you guys don't shape up, Jerusalem's going to fall. God's people are going to fall. And they're like, no, 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 we got the temple. God's with us. We're right with God as long as we keep this thing going. And, and then what happens out of this is things get worse and worse. And eventually a prophet named Ezekiel, and I'm choosing Ezekiel because we preached on Ezekiel earlier this year. But there's a point. So the glory cloud filled the temple when it was dedicated. There's a point in Ezekiel where long before the final destruction of Jerusalem, where the Lord, and, and I got to preach on this, so this was easy to include here. Um, the, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. That's like a moment where you're starting to see, and what happens is the glory of the Lord leaves the temple before the temple is destroyed. And the, the Lord wants Ezekiel to make sure every stinking person in Jerusalem knows when that place is destroyed, it's because I brought it about. I wasn't here defending you because of how sinful you were. I'm going to come back. I'm just going to go out to Babylon for a while. And that, that's really how God kind of communicates to the people. And so what happens is we go from God and the nation of Israel and the temple, and then you remove the temple from the equation because God is no longer there. And, and God is doing this on purpose. He's been warning the people, and the people have been ignoring him. They've been worshiping other gods. They've been putting their trust in things like Egypt, places that the Lord delivered them from. They've been just being fools. And, and so what comes out of this is that there's kind of no longer a place where heaven and earth meet for a while. And in fact, in Ezekiel 33, after Ezekiel for like 32 chapters just exhaustingly tells everyone, judgment. Um, after all that in Ezekiel 33, in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Um, we find out in other passages in the Bible just how thoroughly the temple has been destroyed. And, and so now there's no longer a nation. Now there's just the Jewish people who are in exile. They no longer have a land. They're just in exile. And, that, that's, and there's God still, because God's made it very clear through his prophets, like, I'm in control still. I hope you guys understand that. The good that comes out of this is on the other side of this, the Lord gives many promises. One of the promises in Ezekiel, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, the Jews. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore heaven and earth. Again, my dwelling place shall be with them. 
and I will be their people or their God, and they will shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And so the promise is a promise. That's just Eden. God and his people dwelling together. And, and it goes further than that because Ezekiel talks about that. He also promises a, a, a future temple. And, oh, I gotta go. I'll get to that slide in a second. They, Ezekiel promises a future temple. And that's, um, if COVID wouldn't have happened, you would all be so well-versed in this because um, that's what we were going to do in March. Um, and, and I was so excited for it. But essentially, um, essentially, there's the Temple of Solomon's really impressive. And then Ezekiel describes a temple in the back half of the book, or back 10 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, talking about a temple that's bigger and better and better in every way. And God is more fully with his people than ever before. And it's just like Eden. And, and we're supposed to get really excited about it. And that's where we come back to Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So when we come back to this moment, and we're going to keep going in a second, but when we come back to this moment, there's a couple things we should be thinking about. The first thing is that the purpose of the temple was it was a place where heaven and earth meet, where man can be right with God and dwell with him and worship him and glorify him in his presence. So if the people are sitting around and saying, you know what, we don't need to do that. What they're saying in Old Testament terms is, do we need to be right with God? I mean, it's his fault the temple fell. That's kind of what they're saying. And the problem here is that the whole Old Testament builds on this theme of being right with God and God wanting relationship with us and wanting us to be fully with him. And, and there's this theme that comes to this point and the people are kind of like, we got to build our houses. We got to do these other things. And, and so they are not even thinking about the house of the Lord the way they should. And so they can't, based on their own belief system, they can't really be right with God if there's not a temple. And that's a problem. So they, spoiler alert for the rest of the series, they do build that second temple in Haggai. Um, and the second temple, um, the first thing I will say about the second temple is when they build it and dedicate it, there is no glory cloud. It's a letdown. Um, I was trying to think of how to illustrate the second temple, and this is the best I have. Um, a couple of years ago, I was visiting a friend who's at a church um, south of Chicago, and the Awana director came in while we were talking and said, hey, you don't know anyone here. Could you help us judge our Pinewood Derby? Um, and so I, okay. Um, I actually, I was really excited about it. I was going to be super judgmental um, the whole time. Um, and then uh, I was actually, here's the thing. I was going to go in and all the ones that clearly the parents did the work, um, I was going to be really critical on. But she had already sorted them out. And so there was one set of Pinewood Derby cars that it was like the parents were carpenters and the kids were playing video games or on their cell phones while the parents did the work. And then there was another set where you're like, okay, either the parents only helped a little bit or the parents were like, just go do it. I just, there, there were two sets. The second temple is like a Pinewood Derby card made without parental help. The first temple is like a Pinewood Derby card you get what I'm saying. But the point is, the second temple is like a, it's just such a letdown. It's such a letdown in so many ways. The, the presence of the Lord does not come back the same way they'd hoped for. There, there's, there's promises that the Lord's going to return. They had that promise from Ezekiel of this amazing temple, and then they see what they have, and they're like, oh, did we do it to scale? That's, those are the things I think. But 
the point is, the second temple comes in, and that's where things kind of stop. And so the people are still trying to figure out what it looks like to be right with God, how, how to live in that way, and they, they rely on the temple to do that. But, but there's just a reality that at the best, at the end of the Old Testament, at the best, there's a hope that God's going to do something else. At the end of the Old Testament, there's not really a hope that we will get to be in heaven with God because of our sin. And that doesn't go away until the Old Testament is over because the reality is, is that the best humanity can do is, is move further and further away from Eden. The worst we can do is actively contend with God and watch us he overthrows us. The good news is that it doesn't end there. So we're going to be in John now. I mean, I picked John because we preached on it last year. But in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Remember, we started in Genesis 1 today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we learn about another player that we, he's in the Old Testament too, but, but we, we see him just clearly defined. God was not alone in creation. It was a Trinitarian triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from the beginning, there was a plan. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, if we're using the imagery from the Old Testament of what the temple was, in my mind, I can't help but think that Jesus was like a a mobile temple in himself because he is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God is right with a person. And and, and, and that moment of Jesus just walking around and being on this earth is, is something new and something different. And in fact, the way Jesus talks about the temple in John, the first time he visits the temple right before Passover, he goes in and sees that there's all these merchants trying to take advantage of the people trying to sacrifice. And what does he do? He flips tables. He makes a quart of whips. He drives people out and says, don't do that here. And then a a kind of argument ensues. And at one point, Jesus, who is fully God, at one point, um, what he thinks about the temple is Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And remember, this is Pinewood Derby Child Made Temple. Okay? Remember, and so they're, they're like, <laughs> and he says, and, and, and he, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Because the place where heaven and earth meet, at the incarnation, that, that is now a person. It's, it's no longer a place, it's a person. Do you see? Do you see? And, and so now, now what Eden was is now coming together fully in the incarnation of Jesus. If I can take this a step further, in John 20, after Jesus, is, he dies on the cross for our sins, and he dies and he's resurrected, and then Mary Magdalene goes to his tomb. She gets there, it's empty. She goes and tells the disciples, and then Peter and John come back. One of them's faster than the other, but one of them's more bullish. Um, whole thing. But then they leave after they see the tombs empty, and Mary Magdalene just sits there weeping. And as she's weeping, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, because he approaches her, and she did not know that it was Jesus yet. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary Magdalene, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Now John, when he writes is so careful with his language. And when it says, supposing him to be the gardener, it's, it's telling us something. It's hitting us over the head with, we're back in Eden. At least Jesus is. There's a solution now that was never there before because when Jesus died and rose again, there is now a solution. There is now a gardener. There is now a way back into the garden. And this person, this man where heaven meets earth 
is starting to tend to creation again. We have covered a lot. <laughs> um, we're not done. Um, so so we, we go just a little bit further because at this point, um, I hope I'm about to like hit you over the head really hard um, if you haven't been yet. Um, so Jesus meets with his disciples. He meets with some smaller crowds, but many people see the resurrected king. And then he goes in Acts. In Acts 1, he talks to the disciples and he tells them, you know, wait in Jerusalem and then power is going to come on you and you're going to be my witnesses to Judea or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and he gives them that command. And he says, in power, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And then they go and they wait in Jerusalem and they're in a room and they're praying in the, this group, not just the disciples, there's other with them, others with them. And then the Pentecost happens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now pause. Where have we seen imagery of filled an entire space? The tabernacle? The temple? And what happened? The people couldn't be in there. But what's happening now? And, and, and they were in there. And, divide, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Heaven and earth have now met in humanity and not just Jesus. And this same imagery is going to happen in, I think, Acts 8 and again in Acts 10. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit come to people. And it means something profound. The, the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, the imagery that we are supposed to desire from the moment we get to Genesis 3, the return of God dwelling with his people. We're, we're a part of that now. We're, we're no longer separated. We're a part of this new temple. And, and we are the place where heaven and earth meets. Not because of anything we've done, let's be clear. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because when we are covered in his blood, it's not an animal sacrifice. It's not a temporary thing. But now we are able to stand before the Lord fully, just fully covered by his blood. Implications of this. If you had a time machine, first off, if you have a time machine, shame on you if you don't go back a year and warn us all. Okay, let's just start there. But if you had a time machine and could somehow go back and go back to the time of the tabernacle, you could just stand in there as the glory of the Lord fills it if you have the Holy Spirit. Because you are right with God because of what Jesus did. And I don't know how time travel works with um, atonement and sanctification, but we're just going to assume for a moment it would. Um, you also could be there at the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and you would not melt. Okay? So just, just things to think about because we have been made holy by what Jesus did. And that is not something for some time far away from now. That is something for right now. When, when the Spirit descended in Acts, the imagery there goes back to the temple, to the tabernacle, and it's supposed to get us right back to Eden. Man and God can dwell together again. And, and, and not, not because of anything we did, but because we've accepted what Jesus, the resurrected king, has done. So we've, we've covered a lot. Now I just have points. So there's, there's not, a lot, not a lot more slides. So um, we're not doing bad on time, though, so I might stretch it. Um, so first point that we need to understand, and this one, uh, Christians must recognize that we have been made right with God through Jesus. Past tense. Have been made right. Passive past tense, I think, 
just whatever that is grammarly. Um, the point of this, though, one of the things in this season that has been very hard for me is I have heard a lot of Christians talking about how they, they wish we could go, like, and there are people here today, and if you're here today, I hope you're not, if, if you are a believer, I hope you did not come this morning thinking, I want to be right with God, so I need to go to church today. Because that's, that's what we do. That's the trap we fall into. We think of the church as the Old Testament temple where we come in to meet, be made right before God. And the problem is, is that if our attitude is we show up to this building to be made right before God and we're already believers, what we're saying is what Jesus did was not enough. Bad. Very bad. And, and the, the bigger thing here is that we need to rejoice that we are always right with God if we have the Holy Spirit, if we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you are out there right now and you have not done that, let me just say, give your life to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. Believe that he died and rose again. Just, just believe that because that is what our life, that's how we get back to Eden. The purpose of humanity, to be in relationship with God, to glorify God, to, to just rule over this earth with God in Eden. That, that's coming again in Revelation. We're going to look at that as we close. But, but do that today. Don't, don't run away from that. Just, just recognize you can be right with God. And for the Christian out there that's struggling and says, but I don't feel that way. It's really good that our feelings can be true that we feel them and yet not be true at all. There are times that I feel super far from God. We've had so many technology issues the last few weeks that as I was preparing to preach, I was sitting there like, I don't remember what I'm going to say. And I was like, well, at least I got 100 slides. I'll just go slide to slide. But the, the point is, is we can feel very far from God. We can feel very far from God, but that does not mean that what Jesus did is any different. And we're lucky that what Jesus did is so amazing because it's not dependent on us and we need to recognize that and we need to live in that truth. When we come together, we come together for a different purpose. We come together to declare to others that they can be made right with God through Jesus. Um, Brett Feiler's testimony, um, he came in this week and we filmed it. And um, I, I wished, I, it was such a busy day, I wish we could have just talked for hours um, because I, just hearing just how excited he is about what he's doing. And I, yes, we're in the middle of this coronavirus season, but at the same time, Brett is finding ways to go out and, and to just make sure people are hearing the good news about Jesus. And Pastor Rich led a man to the Lord this last week. And so we get to celebrate that because as a church, what we should be doing is celebrating that people are coming to know the Lord. And what we should be doing is not trying to make sure we're right with God because we are. But instead, we should be declaring we are right with God, reminding each other of that and telling others about it. If, if you've ever, um, I was going to do a slide of this, but <laughs> you don't. Um, if you've ever seen the Romans Road, um, the, the thing where you get like the, like there's man and God at creation and then they break apart and then there's like this divide, right? And then the cross of Jesus builds a, a bridge. Um, man, I wish I had a slide. But, um, but if, you've, if you've ever seen that, there's this idea, and I use this illustration um, when I talk to people about the gospel, but the, the idea is that man and God are separated by sin. And because of the gift of Jesus, we, we have a bridge to get over to God again. And, and the thing is, is that for what that means is not our life. We cross this bridge, and by the time we die, we get to be on the other side with God. The point is we're either over with God or we're separated from him, living in this accursed world without relationship with him. There's no, well, I'm kind of halfway. You're either in or you're not. You're either right with God or you're not, and, and we need to be right with God so we can tell others, you know what? I, I stink a lot of the time, but I am right with the Lord because of what Jesus has done. 
And I do my best to live up to what Jesus has already made me. The final thing is we must put our hope in what is to come from having been made right with God. Um, I had the chance, I spent a lot of time with the Kubakis um, this week. And, um, as, and as I'm doing the sermon prep, I just kept thinking about, I mean, just based on I, Chris passing away, um, the, the most amazing thing that I can think of in the midst of it is that before Chris passed away, he was fully right with God. On the other side of the grave, he now understands fully what he had before. It's, it's not that he's, like, yes, he is new, but, but the new creation starts when we accept Jesus. It's, he, he's going to experience it in so many new ways now that, that before, because of our sinful, fallen world, he could not. But, but the point is, is that, that the hope we have doesn't start when we die, it's now. And, and it's such an encouraging thing to think we have that same hope. And, and, and so I, I just, that's where our hope has to be. It can't be in politicians. It can't be in a vaccine. I, I hope we get a vaccine. I hope we get something. I, I just, I'm so sick of all of this stuff, but I can't put my hope in that more than my hope is in God and in what I have because I've been made right with God. I have returned on this side of sin as close as I can get to heaven, as close as I can get to Eden. And the good news is someday when I pass away and when I leave this world behind, I'm already fully right with God. But on the other side, I'm going to get to see the throne of God and see it all in all its glory. And, and I, oh wait, I have slides of this. I don't need, I, uh, everything came out of the Bible, but I didn't open my Bible at all because I worried I'd flip too much. Um, we come to the end of Revelation and in light of Eden, in light of the tabernacle, in light of the temple, in light of the glory of God descending, in, in light of everything we have seen today, when we come to the end, when the throne of God is with man, listen to the imagery in light of all that. Then the angel showed me, John, the writer, the river of, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. A new Eden, a new, better heaven and earth where we get to reign with God the way he intended from the beginning that we couldn't get to on our own. And God said, I'll, I'll bring you back through the word, through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Lord, we thank you that in light of the fact that we on our own could never return to relationship with you, that you sent your son that we might be fully right before you because of what he did. We thank you that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, we have hope. Because of your Holy Spirit, we have assurance. We, we, we know that we are your people. And we thank you that on this side of heaven, when we don't understand so much, when there is so much that is just, just left on, like, we just can't see it. I just, we, we, we can't understand it because of sin, and be, because of just the accursedness of this world that we are a part of, because of our sin, we can't see it. But we thank you that the access we have to you through the death and resurrection of your son, through his blood, 
is complete. And we, we thank you that on the other side of the grave or the rapture or whatever happens, Lord, we thank you that we will be fully in your presence, that you will be God and we will be your people. We thank you that we have that. And we thank you that we have that hope that we can be there someday fully in your presence. And Lord, we, I pray for anyone here who is not right before you, that right now they would just say, Lord, I want that free gift. I want what your son Jesus has to offer. I, I, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my King. I, I want him to be my Savior. I, I give my life to you, Lord. And, and Lord, I, I pray that they would not go another minute not knowing that they are right with God. For all of us who have made that commitment, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us not be blinded to our status with you because of your son. I pray that we would not live in fear that we need to earn your favor, but would, would instead live out what you've made us through your son. I pray that we would allow the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives as we move forward and that we would just be able to enjoy the communion with you that we have. And I thank you, Lord, that we have hope that for those that are grieving loved ones, that if they knew you, if they had a relationship with you, they were right before you and, and they're just on the other side of the grave, just enjoying what, what the fullness of your presence. And we pray that we would have that hope and that we would live like we already have that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you. At, at this point, um, I didn't plan anything after, um, but I, I want to encourage you as you go out, if, if you are a believer, to just live like you're right with God and ju just live that out and just live in that confidence of who you are in Jesus. Go in peace.